Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be back together again, uh, Memorial Day weekend. Uh, once more, wishing we could be side by side with one another, but as we say every single week, uh, soon, soon we'll be back together again. Uh, and uh, I've been putting out some information, some things about um, how uh, Calvary Chapel is adjusting to the changing in phases that the governor, governor is implementing. Uh, and they're coming out through video and I believe through e-news. So, so if you haven't seen those, be on the lookout for those. Uh, they either will be coming out shortly or have already. And we want to make sure that you're able to see those and listen and that you're listening to those. Uh, today we are in Mark chapter 14. And so if uh, you would turn there with me. Mark chapter 14 is the longest chapter uh, in the book of Mark. Uh, and we have spent three weeks on some chapters, five weeks on some chapters, so I can only imagine how long we'll be in Mark chapter 14, but it's all good, and you guys are very patient with me, and I appreciate it. Plus, you, no one talks back to me anymore, which is uh, fun as well. Anyhow, that being said, uh, over the last, I would say now, two months, maybe three months, ever since we came to Mark chapter 11, we have been looking at the last week of the life of Jesus. Uh, somewhere around Mark 9, halfway through Mark 9, we've been looking at the last month of Jesus as Jesus began to progress from the area of Galilee down into the region of Judea and into Jerusalem. And it was in Mark chapter 11, starting in the first verse, that Jesus triumphantly entered into the city of Jerusalem. And it began the last week of the earthly life of Jesus, obviously here on the earth. On Sunday, as I said, the triumphant entry, that's in chapters 1 through, uh, or chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, where he was heralded as God's Messiah, even if everyone didn't realize that's what they were doing. We saw the next day that Jesus went up to the Temple Mount area. That's when he cleansed the temple and he chased out the money changers. We saw that also in chapter 11. And then we noticed how on that Tuesday, he began to interact with and be grilled by, uh, essentially, uh, the various religious leaders, a whole bunch of gotcha questions that they, they brought to him, uh, and how Jesus adeptly handled those before leaving with his disciples, going to the Mount of Olives, and delivering uh, what we have come to know as the Olivet Discourse. Well, today, as we come to today, uh, here in chapter 14, we are in the Wednesday of Holy Week. And we notice that Mark points out to us in verse 1 that it was now two days before the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, actually two separate feasts in the Jewish calendar, but because they are right up alongside of one another, they were pretty much treated as one long feast. The Feast of Passover, one day, right in the middle of the, the month of Nisan, uh, with, similar to our month of April, and then following that, the next seven days, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, and as I said, in many ways, they became one eight-day long feast. And Mark here now tells us we are two days away from that feast or from those feasts. And so with Passover quickly approaching and the population of Jerusalem growing by the day, day by day by day, with all of the pilgrims that are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, the, the size of the city's population has swelled from 50,000 all the way up to something like 250,000. Uh, I was always thinking it's like the Jersey Shore uh, on the July 4th weekend as thousands and thousands and thousands of people all come together to congregate 
in one location. Well, that's what they were doing and would do in Jerusalem. The Jews had a, an expectation, a code that they followed, a, a law, I guess you might say, uh, in which every Jew that lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem was expected to come to Jerusalem. But way beyond that, Jews, they, they weren't forced to go, they wanted to go. Uh, and so Jews from every village in Israel would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Jews from around the world and, and some Gentiles from around the world would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It was the dream of every Jew to celebrate at least one Passover and enjoy one Passover meal in the city of Jerusalem. That was their ambition. That was their goal. And so the city of Jerusalem would have been packed with people so filled that many of the guests couldn't even stay within the confines of Jerusalem, but they would stay in the neighboring cities of Bethpage, as we mentioned, and the city of Bethany, as we mentioned, which is where Jesus and his disciples will settle. So the area is going to be packed. Uh, I was reading uh, the historian Josephus, uh, who we reference a lot. He was a first century Jewish historian who wrote for the, city, for the Empire of Rome, the history of the Jewish people. And one year he requested uh, the high priest to, to keep a census of how many Passover lambs were slain that given year. And the number came out to 256,500 Passover lambs. And since the law required that a Passover gathering uh, had to have at least a minimum number of 10 people to each slain lamb, that tells us that the number of, in Jerusalem at that time was somewhere around 3 million people. So the city, it would have been packed. And isn't it just like the Lord that in this last act of Jesus's life, it would play out in a city that was crammed with people that had come to that city to celebrate their deliverance from bondage? Because that's exactly what God's Messiah, what Jesus was going to do, was deliver us from our bondage to sin. Now, since Passover remembered the time when God raised Moses, the great deliverer of the Jewish people, set them free from the, the oppression that they were experiencing in Egypt, it, Passover developed into much more than a religious holiday. It developed into a very patriotic holiday amongst the Jewish people. And, and every year there was sort of this swelling of anticipation that this could be the year that God's Messiah comes and he's going to set us free. And so the Jews looked for that. At the same time, the Romans looked at that and became very concerned about this. And they would up their numbers of police presence and they would bring in thousands of extra soldiers into the city of Jerusalem to deal with the swelling of the crowds and the patriotic uh, fervency of those crowds at that particular time. And so it, that almost certainly, aware of the Roman presence, almost certainly weighs into the decision-making process of the chief priests and scribes. And we see that, you'll notice there in verse 2, it says, the chief priests and the scribes, they were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth, how they might kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So the chief priests and the scribes, they want to kill Jesus, but they want to be very, very careful not to cause an uproar among the people because they know how the Roman government would respond to such an uproar. They want to arrest Jesus. The word we've been using throughout our study of Mark is they want to destroy Jesus and they begin the week looking actively for ways to do so. 
John told us that back in John 11, he said uh, that they essentially gave orders, if anyone knows where he is, let us know so that we can arrest him. It seems, however, that because of Jesus's reception on Palm Sunday, because of the way the things that were going up on the Temple Mount and how the people, the population was responding to that, it seems now that the religious leaders kind of changed their plans. They postponed their plans. They revised their plans, lest there be, as it says, an uproar amongst the people. And their new goal is to figure out a way to arrest Jesus by stealth. Maybe when the Passover is over or as the Passover is closing or in a place where nobody else is around, they'll arrest the Lord. And again, as we see in that verse there, they want to arrest him by stealth so that they might kill him. Sadly, these religious leaders, they weren't afraid to murder the Son of God. They just believed they had to do it in a politically smart and calculated way. And now it was just a matter of figuring out what that politically smart and calculated way was. Mark's going to come back to that in verse 10. And so we'll come back to it at that point as well. But first, what Mark does is he contrasts the dark and treacherous deed of betrayal and murder at the hand of Judas and others. And he contrasts that with one of the sweetest and most beautiful acts of adoration in all of the scripture which is the anointing of Jesus' head and feet by, in Mark's version, an unnamed worshiper. And so let's read that account. It's really going to be the bulk of our passage today, verses 3 through 9 of Mark 13. Let's read it together. It says this, Now while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and she poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like this? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you have always the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now there's a very similar account that's recorded for us in the gospels that also involved a woman that came and anointed the feet of the Lord. And that was also in the house of a man named Simon. You can read of that account in Luke chapter 7. And while there are a number of similarities in those two accounts, there's enough distinction between the two stories to make it clear that we're talking about two different events, uh, yet similar, similar but yet different events that are taking place here. According to John's gospel, this event that we're looking at here in Mark, it actually occurs six days before the Passover. So that's even before Jesus triumphantly entered into the city. And so John 12, it tells us six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany and, and it goes on from there and it explains the exact same scenario. And so that is to say that verses 3 and following in Mark's account actually occur before verses 1 and 2 in Mark's account. Six days as opposed to two days. Now that's not a contradiction in the various Gospels. Rather, what it does is it reflects Mark's 
technique, Mark's teaching technique, the way that Mark writes, and what Mark would oftentimes do in the scripture is he would link various events, like events, together as he is retelling um, of those events. And in this case, what he does is he links two events that represent the degree to which two different persons, uh, how two different persons valued or maybe didn't value the Lord. He's going to contrast this woman's act of devotion with Judas's act of betrayal. And as I made, so as I made mention, the event before us, it actually takes place on the Saturday before Palm Sunday, before Jesus's triumphant entry. This is eight days before Jesus's victorious resurrection. And it takes place in the home of a fellow named Simon the leper, who we see is of Bethany. I, I wonder, maybe that should properly say Simon the former leper, otherwise nobody would go into the house. Now we don't know a lot about Simon the leper. We don't know a lot about him, but we can piece some things together and make some educated guesses about him. And so it's John's account which seems to indicate that this event occurs at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, three um, siblings. And John's account seems to say it happens at their house, and yet here in Mark's account, it, seem, it does say that it's in the house of Simon. And so that has led some to speculate that Simon is either the husband of Martha, couldn't be Mary's husband because she's not yet married, so either the husband of Martha, or maybe that he's the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So that's certainly a possibility. Another possibility is that since Simon became a leper, this used to be the house of Simon, uh, the dad, for instance, and now it's passed on to his three children as Simon had to um, separate himself from the rest of the people. Um, so again, that's certainly a possibility. We don't really know much about this fellow Simon the leper. Another thing we learn about this meal is also from John's Gospel, John chapter 12, the parallel story, is that it seems to be that the purpose of this meal, the, the reason why they gathered together, was to celebrate and honor Jesus for the work that he did in a little while back, raising Lazarus from the dead. And so if you look at that John 12 passage, there's a, a couple of different phrases that are found in that passage that, that seem to indicate that Lazarus was one of the, the two guests of honor, so to speak. And so uh, thus it seems like they threw a party for the Lord to, to thank him, to celebrate uh, that Lazarus had been raised from the dead. And again, we don't really know that as well, um, but we can piece some of those things together. But there's this great banquet. Jesus is a part of this banquet, as are a number of others. And into the midst of this banquet, Mark tells us, all the well, Matthew, Mark, and John tell us, the, uh, into the midst of this banquet, a woman comes in. Mark doesn't name who she is. Matthew doesn't name who she is, but John does. John tells us that her name is Mary and that she is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And we read that she comes in, she pours a very expensive ointment, which we're told is made from pure nard, and she uses that, she breaks the, the vessel in which it's in, and she uses that to anoint both the head, according to Mark, and the feet, according to John, of Jesus. Now, nard, which maybe more commonly you know as spike nard, 
it was an aromatic oil. Today, they use the term, it was an essential oil. It's still sold today. And it was derived from a particular flowering plant that was located in the Himalayan mountains, China, Nepal, India, kind of in that region of the world. And so for this woman, 2,000 years ago, in Israel, to have access to this aromatic oil, um, it was a very, very expensive thing for her to possess. It was the type of thing that was typically passed down from one generation to another, typically from a mother uh, to her daughter, and that she would keep uh, as a family heirloom. A little bit later in our passage, we're told that the estimated value of this heirloom, this spike nard, was 300 denarii, 300 days wages, almost a year's wage was the value of this particular ointment here. And the funds from this, either it was something like a family heirloom or this was going to be Mary's dowry. This is what she was going to use as part of uh, the purchasing price, so to speak, um, for her wedding and for her marriage. An item like this today, it is said, would have cost tens of thousands of dollars. And yet Mary breaks it. The, the, the idea there being no going back, I'm all in. Mary breaks the vessel in which it is in, and she pours the whole thing over the head and over the feet of the Lord. She anoints the Lord. This was Mary's act of tribute to the Lord. And we don't know exactly what it was that prompted Mary to come forward with this act of tribute. Perhaps in conjunction with this dinner, it was her way of saying thank you for raising her brother, Lazarus, back to life. Maybe it's that. Perhaps it had something to do with the many times she sat at his feet and she learned from him. And the way that Jesus ministered to her soul and her family, all of her family knew the Lord, uh, their soul during those times. Maybe that's why she did it. Perhaps it was in recognition that she determined this indeed is the Messiah. And I'm going to anoint him. Jesus says at least an aspect of what she has done was that it prepared his body for burial. But it doesn't indicate whether she actually knew what she was doing when she did that. But for one reason or another, she's prompted, she's motivated, she comes and she brings this offering unto the Lord. This very, very expensive offering to the Lord. Because for Mary, nothing was too precious for Jesus. And thus she presented him with the most magnificent tribute that she could bring. And in this case, it was the very costly flask of pure nard. Now, this was not Mary's first experience with the Lord. In fact, Mary appears on three different occasions in the Gospels. And interestingly, each time we see Mary, we see her eventually during that encounter ending up at the feet of Jesus. That tells us something about Mary, and it tells us something about her relationship with the Lord. It tells us that Mary had a close, personal relationship with the Lord, and that it was a relationship which was marked by her humility and her submission to him and his leading. And so it's Luke got, Luke's gospel which records for us the first time that we see Mary at the feet of Jesus and it was, as one commentator I read said, it was a time of sunshine and prosperity. 
It was a happy time in Mary's life. It was somewhat early in the ministry, the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And it was when the Lord had come to that area, to Bethany, and he sat and he taught the people. And we learn from Luke chapter 1039, that tells us that Mary sat at Jesus's feet and she learned from the Lord. Again, a time a day of sunshine and prosperity where all was well and all was at ease in Mary's life and she just soaked it all in. Chronologically, the next time we see Mary interacting with the Lord, again, at his feet, this time, however, is not sunshine and prosperity, but this time it's a time of grief and it's a time of sorrow because this is the time in John 11 we read that her, her brother Lazarus had died. And yet, despite her anguish and her sorrow and perhaps even her sense that the Lord had disappointed her. Remember, she said, Lord, if you had been here and they had called for him four days earlier and he didn't come right away. And so maybe there's a sense of that the Lord had let her down. So there's sorrow, there's anguish, maybe disappointment. And despite all of that, once again, we find Mary at the feet of the Lord, pouring her heart out to the Lord and saying, Lord, if you had only been here. And then the third time we see Mary is this instance here, Mark chapter 14. It's the third and final time that Jesus and Mary encounter one another. This time it's at this particular banquet in which she is anointing his head and his feet. And as Jesus points out, she's anointing his body for burial. And so whether it's the peaceful hour of happiness or the dark season of sadness, or it's a day like this of uncertainty and questions, each time, in each one of those instances, Mary comes and she positions herself at Jesus' feet. I think we would all do well to learn the example of Mary, the disciple of Jesus. Because in the day of joy, she came to Jesus, as many people do. But I'll say this, you know this, you've seen it probably in your life, just as many people forget about the Lord when everything is going well and everything is wonderful. There's the old expression, there are no atheists in foxholes. The reality is there are plenty of atheists in palaces. When all is going well and all is going wonderful, many people don't look to the Lord. Here's Mary when all was going well and all was going wonderful, sitting and receiving from the Lord. That's the first instance here. The second thing is, in the day of grief and sadness and disappointment, she also came to the Lord. And whereas there are many that come to the Lord when things are great, many walk away from the Lord when things aren't going just as they had hoped or planned or expected. And God, where are you? And God, why would you? And if God, if you won't, then I, and so on and so forth. And yet here's Mary, even in that instance, sitting at the, the Lord's feet. And finally, here in Mark 14, in the, the period of uncertainty. In uncertainty of God's sovereign working. This is where we ask those types of questions. God, what are you doing? God, if you're so powerful, why? Why won't you intervene? God, I prayed and you didn't answer my prayer. Those times of uncertainty. We have each one of these experiences. We, it's life. Times are wonderful, times are great, times are difficult, times are challenging, and times are uncertain, and we just don't know why God is doing what he is doing. But in every one of those instances, Mary, this disciple of the Lord, she says like another Mary, behold, the handmaid of the Lord. 
And she says, like the Lord himself, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. She submits herself to her Savior. Now, going back to this Mark passage, Mark tells us that she broke the flask, uh, that this costly ointment was held, and she poured it over his head. And so in breaking the flask, all of that oil is coming out. She's all in. There's no going back. She is completely committed to that which she is about to do. She breaks the flask. She pours it over his head. Now, it was, it was the practice in that day, if an invited guest were to come for a meal, that the host of that meal would anoint the guest with a drop or a couple of drops of oil, kind of a to replace maybe the stench of sweat or whatever it might be from walking outside, they would uh, pour a drop or two of oil onto that particular person. Mary goes much further than that. Mary doesn't just do the bare minimum in her honoring of the Lord, but she goes way beyond the customary greeting, not with just a few drops of oil that would allow the Lord, so to speak, to freshen up, but rather breaking the flask and anointing him with the entire contents of that vial. And that act, you'll see, we see, verse 4, notice it says, it shocks those that are in attendance. Notice verse 4. Mark 14, 4 says, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? Some take it upon themselves to begin indignantly, it's hard for me to say, And that word, I looked it up, what does that exactly mean? Because you heard it, but you forget what it means. It means to express anger and annoyance. And so some there begin to express their anger with Mary and their annoyance with this dumb woman, that would, and they begin to denounce the act of tremendous waste. That's the word they use. Why was this wasted? John's gospel tells us it was specifically Judas who was the treasurer of the group of disciples, that it was Judas who was the one that was indignant about this expense. And John is the one who tells us that his indignation was completely self-serving. John chapter 12, 6 says, he said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in. John didn't really care uh, one way or the other, about helping the poor. John cared about poor Jesus is what, who John cared about. Now, you'll be interested to note that Judas says, he uses this word waste. He says, why this waste? That that same word is translated elsewhere as perdition, which means waste. It's translated elsewhere as perdition, which is the word that might sound familiar to you. That's the word that Jesus used to describe Judas. And so Judas uses the same word to describe what he perceived as Mary's act of wasting her money as Jesus would use to describe his act of wasting his own life. John 17, 12, Jesus said, Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. Mary had apparently, according to Judas and maybe some others, wasted these funds. But Judas, according to Jesus, had wasted his life. So sad. Now, our text indicates that while Judas was the one who brought all this up, he's not the only one that objected to Mary's costly act of devotion. 
And so if you look there at verse 4, it says, there were some who said to themselves. It doesn't say there was one who said. It says there were some indicating more than one. Verse 5 will say, and it'll use the word they. It'll say they scolded her. And so Judas may have begun the criticism of Mary for the reasons that we've already denoted, but he wasn't alone in his criticism of Mary. Mark makes it clear that the disciples themselves jump in and they begin to chastise Mary or criticize Mary for what it is that she has done. The word that is used there, it's the word, in English we have it here, it's the word scolded. It's a word which means glowered, which I found was interesting because when that word is used of an animal like a dog, it is translated or it means to growl angrily at someone. And so you can picture a dog that is angry with you uh, for some reason. You don't know it's a neighbor's dog. You try and take its toy, whatever it may be. And that dog sort of drops down a little and his eyes sort of piercing, kind of draw into the middle and he growls and shows his teeth. Well, essentially, that's what they did to her. They were angry with her, mad at her, annoyed with her. They scolded her. No doubt Mary is beginning to think she made a big mistake here. Now, it was estimated that this act of worship was more, worth more than 300 denarii. Now, a denarius was a day's wage. 300 denarius was essentially one year's wage. So this woman's act of worship was to pour out this ointment unto the Lord and in doing so essentially poured out one year's worth of income. I checked in preparation for today the average New Jersey and Pennsylvania resident, they're right around one another, earns on average $63,000 per year. And so using that figure, that number, that's what Mary poured out in this act of worship to the Lord. Imagine for a moment, this scenario, imagine for a moment if somebody bought $63,000 worth of balloons and went out into our parking lot and released them into the heavens and did so as an act of worship unto the Lord. Do you think for a moment you might be tempted to say, why are we wasting all this money on these balloons? I think you would. Do you think you might be tempted to name all of the other better ways that that money could have been spent? I think we would have. Mary, I'm sure, has to begin to wonder, based on the response of those in the room, she has to begin to wonder, maybe I did something very, very wrong. Judas criticized her because he supposedly wanted to help the poor, but really he wanted to help himself. But these disciples, they probably thought they had a very good argument for what it is they were saying to Mary here. They probably thought, and it probably was true, that their motivations were completely pure and that they were criticizing this woman for proper reasons. She was wasting all of this money. Their indignation it didn't come from the place of covetousness like Judas's did. And again, as I said, they were probably convinced that they were in the right for this. And yet Jesus will essentially say to them, no, you're in the wrong for what you're doing now. And where she may have begun to th think that what she had done was wrong, Jesus said, no, what you did was not wrong, but in fact, it was very, very right. Notice what he says in verse 6. Jesus says, leave her alone. I just, what a great... Lord. He's the best. He just, leave her alone. Stop. What's the matter with you? He says, why do you trouble her? And then he says, look, she's done a beautiful thing to me. 
Some of your versions might say, she's done a good thing to me. That doesn't seem like it's going far enough. There's actually two different Greek words in the New Testament for good. One of them means it was good. The other one has to do with this idea of lovely. Uh, it was over the top. It was special. It was sweet. That's the word that's used here. That's why some of the other translations make it beautiful. Jesus says, this is essentially what Jesus is saying to her. He says, what she did for me was the sweetest thing anybody has ever done for me. I mean, that's the magnitude from which, or of which Jesus was impacted by this act of worship to her. And he's, he says to them, knock it off. Stop. Don't trouble her. What she did for me was the sweetest thing anybody has ever done for me. That helps us understand why later, verse 9 or so, Jesus is going to go on to say that this act of worship by this unnamed woman in two of the three Gospels is going to go down in history and proclaim wherever the gospel is in the entire world, just like we're doing today, 2,000 years later, here in the area of Mercer County, New Jersey. To the others, what she had done seemed too much to lavish upon the Lord, but Mary knew that true love has no limits of what it delights to give and do for the object of its affection. And so when a person loves another in this way, there's a certain extravagance that is found in that love. Mary knew that. When a person loves in this way, in true love, it doesn't carefully calculate how much or how little it should give. It just gives what, it, what it's compelled to give from the heart. True love doesn't sit down and figure out, well, how little can I give without actually offending uh, the one that I am giving to? And in, in, in short, put it all together, there's sort of this recklessness in love that refuses to count the cost. And Mary gets that. The disciples, unfortunately, they don't get that yet. Now, should Mary have sold the ointment? Should she have come and brought the proceeds to the Lord and to the, so that the disciples could figure out a wise way to, to distribute it? Maybe. Maybe that would have been the best, better thing to do. Maybe had Mary come to the Lord and said, look, Lord, I want to pour out this expensive ointment as a way of expressing my love for you. Maybe if she had done that, maybe the Lord would say, Mary, that's so sweet that you would think, but tell you what, why don't we do this instead? I know that you want to offer it to me, but how about instead we sell it and we could feed the poor for a year? And maybe the Lord would have said that had she come to him, but that's not what happened. What happened is Mary brought her offering, she presented her offering to the Lord, and Jesus received it as a gift of her sincere affection to him. And he was blessed by it. Throughout the, the Gospels, we see that the Lord appreciated and received the person when they came to him in sincerity, whether it was to ask him an honest question or to make an offering like this woman was doing. When a person came to him in sincerity, the Lord was glad to receive that person, and he was blessed by that person. Jesus' attitude toward this costly gift it's the exact same attitude he had toward that widow two chapters earlier. Who She went to the temple and she dropped in two small coins worth about a penny. And Jesus said to those that were in the vicinity of him, he said, that woman there, she has given more than all the others combined. He had the same attitude. He regarded both of them as sweet and lovely and priceless. So interesting that others that were there observing these two offerings... One of them said, or some of them said, that the widow's gift was too little. And this woman, they're saying, her gift is too much. 
And I can't help but think maybe the disciples should stop worrying about what others are doing and begin to allow the Lord to search out their own hearts as to what he would have them to do. Because in Jesus' estimation, nothing is wasted that is lavished upon the Lord. And whereas they said that the money should have been given to the poor, Jesus says this, look, the poor you're going to have with you always. Now, that sounds like Jesus got a bad attitude. Jesus, he wasn't opposed to caring for the poor. What Jesus does is he points back to the scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 15, it says, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. He just, he goes back to this, uh, this pointed fact. There will always be poor in the land. And so essentially what Jesus is saying is, look, you'll have plenty of opportunity to help the poor if that's what you want to do. The poor will always be among you. But Jesus was about to leave them. And Mary seemed to realize that. Mary seemed to understand that. Even if she didn't fully understand all that was going on, she seemed to understand something that the disciples did not. And that was that Jesus was about to die And thus, she intends to bring this gift, which would serve as a preparation for his burial, as we see there in verse 8. Jesus, you recall, he directly told his disciples on multiple occasions that he was going to die, that he was going to be buried, and that he was going to be resurrected from the dead. And yet, they completely missed it again and again. Apparently, however, Mary listened and she believed the teaching of Jesus. And when he said that he would be delivered into the hands of wicked men and that he would be mocked and scourged and delivered over to be crucified, Mary believed him. And in response, Mary did what she could do. And we see that there in verse 8. She has done what she could do, Jesus said. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. She did what she could do. Mary wouldn't be able to keep the priest from falsely accusing Jesus. Mary wouldn't be able to quiet the crowds from cr- for crying out, uh, crucify him, crucify him. She wouldn't be able to keep the soldiers that whipped Jesus and ultimately nailed him to a cross. There was nothing she could do about those things, but what she could do, she did. As it says here, she anointed the body, Jesus's body beforehand for burial. She couldn't do all those other things, but she could pour oil on him in an act of worshipful acknowledgement of that which he had come to do, which was to give his life as a ransom for many, as we read earlier in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. She did what she could do. And that is all that God expects of any one of us, is to do what we can do. And so we may not be able or ever asked to speak to great crowds of people, or preach a sermon that will cause 3,000 people to convert, as the Apostle Peter did. We may not be able to lead great numbers of people in worship through, uh, in worship through music and song. We, we may not have the abilities to do that or the opportunity to do that. But we can, every one of us can, typically visit someone in a hospital. Or we could bring a meal to a family that is hurting. Or we could reach out to someone and offer to pray with and for them. We can mow somebody's lawn, or we can go out on a Saturday morning and hand out a cold bottle of water. Very often, I think what happens is we focus on those things we can't do instead of stopping and considering the things that we can. And Mary did what she could, and Jesus memorializes her for all time 
for having done so. So interesting, because we see the disciples all through the Gospels continually squabbling with one another, longing for fame, longing for influence, wanting to be the greatest, and who can sit on the left side and who can sit on the right side. And yet it's this woman whom Jesus eternally memorializes. This woman who simply loved the Lord and focused on those things she could do and not on those things she couldn't. As one commentator I read, he said this, the fragrance of her, of her perfume reaches down even unto our generation. So many things that we can learn from Mary, this Mary, the disciple of Jesus. So many things that we can learn from her act of devotion and love to the Lord. Three things in particular I see. Number one, Mary worshiped the Lord with her whole heart, and she kept nothing back from him as she did so. Secondly, Mary doesn't calculate. She doesn't estimate what the minimum uh, is that she could give and still uh, be without offense to the Lord. And thirdly here, or secondly, I should say, she doesn't calculate, she doesn't estimate, she comes, she gives all that she can. Secondly, we see that Mary, she might not have been able to do some big grand thing, but she did do what she could do. And Mary is a person who doesn't allow the things she can't do keep her from the things that she can do. And finally now, the last point is, Mary doesn't wait. She doesn't wait to do what she could do, but instead she brings her offering now. Imagine, had, had she waited until next weekend's service, Mary would have missed her opportunity to prepare and to bless the Lord in this way. And sadly, I think often what, ha what happens is we're moved to do something, and yet because we put it off, we never actually get around to actually doing it. And that's sad. And it's, it's sad when it happens in our personal relationships with others, but it's especially sad when it happens as it pertains to our acts of worship unto the Lord. A lot that we can learn from Mary. Three things, don't hold back, do what you can, and do it today. Three things you could uh, meditate on and, and take with you as you go from here. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we need to be more like Mary. Lord, I think oftentimes we are like the disciples and we, we sort of sit off on the side and we observe what other people are doing and how they're doing it and we make judgments about it and we say, well, I would do it differently and rather than actually coming and doing it, and worshiping you uh, in an unhindered way, laying our whole lives out there before you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use this example of Mary to stir every one of us that are watching this, to really just consider where are we and how are we in our relationship with you and the ways in which we, we seek to honor you and to bless you. Lord, give us a heart like a Mary that is willing, Lord, not to focus on all these other things that are grand and wonderful that she can't do, but to just look at the things, what can I do to be a blessing to the Lord? And we pray that as we step out in faith in those things, Lord, that you would use us for your glory. And so thank you for this passage. We thank you that your word was once more fulfilled. You said this woman's story would be memorialized around the world for all ages, and here it is, memorialized in our world for this age. Lord, you're good, you're faithful. Bless your people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
But we're going to sing another song of worship. And as always, when that's done, I'm going to come back. I want to just share a couple quick things with you uh, before heading into your, your full Memorial Day weekend. So God bless you and thank you for being here.